Today on CityCast Chicago, early in the pandemic, we learned that domestic violence was going up in the city and around the country. Now, that's because many victims and survivors were stuck at home for long periods of time with the people who were causing them harm. Two years later, and some parts of pre-pandemic life have returned, but domestic and gender-based violence numbers continue to rise. The city of Chicago has promised more funds to combat the violence, so we talk about where that money is most needed. It's Wednesday, February 16th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. Amanda Pyron is the executive director of The Network. The Network is an organization that strives to end domestic and sexual violence by providing education, advocacy, and support to survivors of abuse. Lead producer Carrie Shepard sat down with Amanda. Amanda, are there hard numbers yet of people who had to stay in an abusive environment because of the pandemic? What we do know is that our advocates have reported that when survivors did present for services, that the severity of the abuse was much more extensive than what we would typically see when someone comes in for services. So it seemed, you know, anecdotally that uh, survivors were staying in harmful relationships longer and to the point that they just couldn't take any more. And so while we maybe saw fewer clients in 2021 and 2020, uh, because of the pandemic, their needs were much greater. Uh, and the amount of, of time and the amount of services that a survivor needed to achieve safety was much more extensive. What were some of the other reasons in which the pandemic really heightened the abuse and exacerbated the issue? There were an awful lot of folks subjected to domestic violence or sexual violence who were managing this at a certain level, either via staggering work schedules with their abusive partners, so they weren't home together often, uh, or you know, having a safety net of friends and family that they could go to when things became very difficult at home. And those resources and supports that survivors had created themselves were no longer available. You know, you could no longer take the children to the grandparents' house if your partner was very upset. You couldn't go for a walk necessarily or go to the gym. Um, you were kind of confined to home. Well, let's talk about groups and demographics of those affected. Are there groups who are more likely to reach out for help? The groups most likely to reach out for help are the ones who need the most resources and who don't have as many natural resources to rely on. I think when you look at the survivors who engage in what we call help-seeking behaviors and reaching out to public services or private organizations for support, it's the survivors whose communities are the least invested in. When we look at the number of Black survivors that call the hotline, which is the biggest group of survivors that call the hotline, you can look at the underinvestment in Black communities in Chicago, Cook County, and the Collar Counties, and see that those survivors probably don't have as many natural resources uh, as, say, um, a white survivor on the north side of Chicago. Uh, you're also looking at what resources folks have uh, because of privilege and how easy it is for some survivors to uh, file a police report compared to others, to get an order of protection compared to others, uh, look at language assets. For instance, most of our uh, court communication isn't you know, accessible to folks who don't speak English. And so how does that then um, translate into safety for a survivor? Early on, our emergency fund uh, was heavily trending towards providing emergency assistance to immigrant survivors who couldn't qualify or weren't able to access uh, government supports. 
this is, I think, an interesting thing to highlight, especially during the pandemic is, you know, there are so many ways that abuse is perpetrated and control and manipulation and financial is a big one, right? Like people, victims and survivors feeling like they do not have the financial resources to be able to leave. Absolutely. And, and what we say is survivors have to be able to afford safety. You know, it, safety is not something that comes for free. Um, survivors have to be able to pay their own rent. They have to be able to have a security deposit. And if you're an undocumented survivor, you wouldn't have the ability to verify that you can pay your rent. If you're a survivor who's worked from home caring for your children, you wouldn't be able to go out and necessarily get an apartment without those financial resources. And, you know, that's what we saw time and time again during this pandemic is once survivors felt comfortable leaving, uh, they didn't have access to the resources to do so. And so the network started a emergency crisis fund. Uh, we've raised over $600,000 uh, since April of 2020. And we've granted out every penny of that, plus honestly, a bit more to just under 600 yeah. survivors to pay for rent, to pay for transportation, security deposits, diapers, e-learning supplies. You know, we would have survivors fleeing to a hotel, working with a provider, but they had to keep their kids in school, right? And they didn't sure. have laptops. They didn't have all the, the necessary e-learning supplies. And so we, we purchased those for them because we didn't want uh, a parenting survivor to lose custody of her children because she couldn't keep them in, in virtual school. And so there were just so many things that we had never anticipated uh, that we needed so that survivors could afford to be safe. You know, we don't think of the person who causes harm. We don't often, from an outside point of view, think of them in a multidimensional way. We think of them as the abuser. And, you know, abuse is often cyclical. Those who are abused often then go on to abuse. What are some of the services that are available and treatments through the network or other organizations for those persons who cause harm? Well, people can, who cause harm can call the hotline and be referred to services just like survivors of domestic violence can. The hotline is for anyone who is experiencing or perpetrating domestic violence or is a friend or family member or curious about uh, domestic violence. We do have a member organization, the Center for Advancing Domestic Peace, who solely exists for um, those who are causing harm and provides uh, great programming and supportive services to people who are causing harm you know, who want to be better partners and better parents. Uh, but we're excited that on March 1st, Metropolitan Family Services is partnering with the city of Chicago. They're going to launch a brand new program. It's going to be the first of its kind that will allow clients to self-refer and come in for uh, services, specifically for those causing harm in domestic violence as well. So it'll be a great complement to the other programs I mentioned in our area. So you, when you say clients who self, self-refer, these are you're saying people who cause harm for them to come themselves and say, hey, I need help. Right. Without having to get a referral from a court or from another organization, they can come in and say, I know this isn't the right way to be, and I would like to get help. And those folks call the hotline. <laughs> you know, our hotline does get calls from people who say, I am not being a great partner. We'll be right back. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Where does domestic violence fall in the 2022 city of Chicago budget in terms of resources? Well, we're delighted that Mayor Lightfoot allocated $25 million in American Rescue Plan Act funding for gender-based violence services. So we're excited to have additional housing resources and legal services, as well as a cash assistance program for survivors and services for children who are exposed to domestic violence. So the city has really stepped forward and made domestic violence and and sexual violence um, a priority in terms of um, violence prevention and public health. What we're a little concerned about is that the state administration under Governor Pritzker uh, did not increase uh, the domestic and sexual violence funding to the extent that we had asked. We had asked for an increase of about $28 And they uh, gave us an increase of 400000 which is not even enough to keep up with the cost of living. And so we are currently at $20 million and we wanted to get up to $50 million. So we wanted oh, an increase okay. of about $28 million. We're roughly $22 million. We wanted an increase of $28 million up to 50 which would give us the ability to retain our staff and keep services open. Right now, we're hemorrhaging staff, as is you know a lot of industries and sectors, because our essential workers... Um, have been working nonstop during the pandemic. They're burnt out. Yeah. We have numerous vacancies across our sector. And to retain staff and to keep services open, we've got to, um, we've got to increase pay. We've got to reward our essential workers who've been working nonstop and we have to expand our services. And so we're actively engaged in advocacy around increasing the state budget so that Again, you know, we can pay our essential workers. The city funding is necessary, it's needed, and we're celebrating it, but it's not going to help pay our essential workers. What are some of the most misunderstood issues around domestic violence? What are the issues that need to be addressed that we just, we don't even think about or understand? People who present as male or identify as male tend to think that they have the right to um, exert power and control over people who identify as female, right? Um, that that is an age-old sort of gender notion. And no matter how much we talk about it, it's still there. This is backed up through our culture. It's backed up through religion. It's backed up through art and music. And there's not enough of just really acknowledging that that's what it is. And having done this myself for over 20 years, people are quick to say, oh, but it's really broken families, or it's really mental health, Mm -hmm. or it's really Mm -hmm. addiction. And I can tell you, it's really not. It's actually really some people thinking they have the right to exert power and control over other people. And certainly those dynamics exist in GLBTQ plus relationships or same sex relationships where, you know, one partner, you know, may take on characteristics of uh, the person who exerts power and control, right? And then uses uh, either the status of as being lesbian and gay, you know, to keep someone in the closet, to keep someone under control, uh, may threaten to out that person, um, you know, to their friends or their family um, and use sort of their status in that same controlling way. So it's certainly not limited in any way to heteronormative relationships. What is something you want to make sure the public understands about the issue of gen- uh, 
about domestic violence and gender-based violence that we should still really be paying closely, close attention to. Well, we should all know that we know someone who is experiencing or has experienced an abusive relationship. And it happens to all different types of people um, everywhere. And you know, the first thing that we can do is talk to our friends and family about relationships. You know, do you feel safe in your relationship? Are you okay? Do you need help? And I believe you. Those are some really key mm. things that we can all learn to say when we're talking to our friends and family. And then understand that survivors never really have good options. And so I think what was interesting about the reporting early on in the pandemic is that folks were like, oh, now survivors can't leave. What are they going to do? And I'm like, well, for many survivors, they couldn't leave before, right? Right. You know, it's right. not just the pandemic yes. that keeps folks trapped in their um, in unhealthy relationships. You know, it's a gun. It is the fear of what will happen when they leave. You know, leaving an abusive relationship is the most dangerous time for a survivor. Um, it is not being able to afford safety. You know, perhaps your children are in a really great school and you can't afford it on your own and you don't want them to have to give that up, right? So do you leave? What do you do? You know, that all of these choices work to keep people in relationships where they don't feel like they have a choice. That's such a good point. Like that that sort of social media campaign of the I, why I stayed. I mean, I that's only one part of raising awareness of that, but that's such a good point. Like you said, survivors, they couldn't leave pre-pandemic either, you know, like that people need to understand that. Yes. And if you're a trusted person who who gets to be that person they tell, you know, I believe you and I can help you or we can figure this out. You know, we get calls from folks who say, I'm worried about this mom at my school. I'm worried about my friend. I don't know what to say, uh, but I believe you and we can work this out are great things to say and understand everyone who's in a difficult relationship is facing a series of impossible choices. We just simply don't have enough resources. We don't have enough good options and good choices for survivors, but we're working every day to create better choices and better options for survivors. And so if you are a survivor, reach out for help, talk to someone you know, there is help, there are resources, we will make it happen for you. Um, and if you know someone, please support them. I believe you and we can work this out. Those are really, really important things to say. Amanda Pyron is the executive director of the network. Amanda, thank you for laying this all out and talking this through with us on CityCast Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. Don't get rid of that box of KN95 masks just yet. Mayor Lightfoot and Dr. Arwady said while they remain hopeful that COVID-19 numbers are improving, they said they're not ready to put a date on removing masks just yet. And now that Alder Daly Thompson has been convicted in his federal tax fraud case, the mayor has 60 days from the time of his resignation to appoint a new Alder person to serve out Thompson's term. This is going to be a key appointment, y'all, as the 11th Ward, a longtime daily stronghold, could potentially become the city's first and only Asian-American majority ward. If you're interested in serving on your local school council, but you're not really sure where to start, you're in luck. Raise Your Hand Illinois is hosting a virtual candidate workshop tomorrow at 6 p.m. Remember, you have until February 25th to submit your application. And some good news to get you through. 
Andersonville Restaurant Week is back and starts this Friday. Almost 20 restaurants are participating, and I'm going to have to make my way up to the neighborhood for some Betty Lou's off 56 North Ashland. Just hold a bucket of the soul rolls for your boy. For more Chicago stories and events, subscribe to our daily newsletter at chicago.citycast.fm slash newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Carleon Jones got with the team and hit the ground running with her teacher, Natalie.